Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. We're going to continue with our series I began a few weeks ago in, Mo- in, uh, in Exodus, not in Moses. Um, it's about Moses, called Moses, the servant of God, how God takes shapes and uses a life for his purpose. And we're now in Exodus chapter 2, and I'm going to read a number of verses from that chapter. So Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day... When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. In Acts 7, there's just a few other verses I want to read. This is when um, Stephen, who was uh, stoned for proclaiming his faith, he, he, part before his stoning, he tells the, if you like, an overview story of the summary of the people of Israel. This is what he writes about Moses. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, He defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. 
And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarrelling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbour thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Let's pray. Father, it's our, it's our desire every time we come to your word and every time we come into your presence that we would see a little bit more of you, that we would be changed a little bit more to be like you, that we would grow in a bit more maturity, that we would be more equipped in our faith and equipped to be able to help and show others the faith that we profess. And so, Father, I pray that as that is the constant prayer of your people, that you would do that for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This series that we're doing about how God takes shapes and uses a life for his purpose, it's, in the modern world, it's actually quite an important thing to look at because um, us being the kinds of people that we are, where we're very, um, we're very resourceful ourselves, we're very active, we can sometimes get the impression that it's not God who takes hold of us, but we can sort of take hold of God and take him along into our dreams and into our purposes. And yet the Bible often talks about, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot in the Bible that talks about God being a potter and us being clay and and that kind of imagery is not one that we particularly understand or think about much today, that we're like clay to God, that God can mould and make us. And it talks about God makes some, some for noble use and some not for noble use. And you're like, well, I don't want to be not noble use. I want to be of noble use. And it, but it also talks about the fact that you don't say, the clay doesn't say to the potter, why did you make me like this and not like that? That in reality, you, you don't have those kinds of conversations with God. We can sometimes think we can, but, but we don't really have those kinds of conversations with God. And, and although it is true that we are all unique and we are all different, the way God trains us is not dissimilar. It's not dissimilar in the same way that we're all unique and all different, but in an absolutely ideal world, we would all have a wonderful relationship with a mother and a father. And those relationships would look very similar. They would look similar, even though we're all very different. It would look very similar. I have a similar kind of relationship with my three daughters. It's, 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 I mean, it's different, but it's similar. There are similarities. One of the similarities is, is attention. I, I, I want to give them attention. Yeah, I, I don't just want to give, oh, well, this one needs attention, that one doesn't need it. They all need attention to some degree. They all need a level of interaction. They all need a level of comfort and help and of correction. All of us need that. So in that sense, we're not unique. We're, we're, we're the same. And God's training ground for us is not dissimilar. The way God trained Moses, he trained Joseph and David and others. And so we're going through this series because we recognise that Moses is a great example of someone who God took hold of his life. And he did stuff with Moses that Moses, more than Moses ever would have dreamed, even though Moses clearly dreamed 
a lot. And God wants to take hold of your life and my life and our church. And he wants to do stuff with us more than we ever would have dreamed. And it's not about negotiating. It's not about, well, God, I've got these ideas. I know you've got some ideas. Why don't you share? No, it's not like that. God takes hold of a person. And he, he, um, he takes you, he shapes you, and he uses you for his purpose. And it's our willingness to be open to the way he does that. So we were looking at that, and the first couple of weeks we looked at, we looked at like the sovereign foundations of Moses, the things that Moses had no control over. He had no control over his history. He had no control over where he was born. He had no control over those circumstances. You've got this wonderful situation, don't you, where Moses' uh, parents put him in a basket. They don't know what's going to happen. He goes off down the Nile. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. And in the end, Pharaoh's daughter hands him back to his very mother to nurse him. And it's interesting, we don't know how long that nursing would have taken, but we can say this, it must have taken long enough for her to have put into her son the promises of Israel. Because by the time he's 40, they're in him. He's raised as a prince of Egypt, but what does it say? It says he went to see his brothers. There was something about his upbringing that had put into his heart yeah, I'm being, I'm being raised in this privileged position, but actually I'm an Israelite. And the Israelites have, have promises from God over their lives. And even though the Egyptians rule, Israel believe in a God who created everything. He would have believed that. That would have been in his heart. And now we find him as an educated uh, adult man. And, and uh, he's clearly, it says in, in Acts, just before the, the passage I read, it says that Moses was mighty in word and deed. Moses was not a small man. He was a big man. I don't mean physically. I don't know what he looked like physically. But clearly he was a big man. He was mighty. He was a prince of Egypt. He, and there's even a story, um, if you read, uh, not that I've read these, but in the, in the Antiquity of the Jews, which is a, a history of the Jews written by a man called Josephus, <coughs> Um, he writes in there that, that Moses, it was, it was called to Moses to go and lead Egypt uh, to war in battle against the Ethiopians. And that he won the battle against the Ethiopians. He was a mighty man within Egypt. He was educated in all the ways of Egypt. And Egypt was like the number one place in the world at the time. So Moses was a, was a man. And yet in his heart, he was an Israelite. And in his heart, the promises of God were there. So now, as an adult, he goes, he decides, who knows for how long he had lived with these thoughts and these burdens in his heart, but there comes a point where he goes to see his people. I'm going to go and see how my people are doing. Yeah? Now we know that, that obviously in his heart he had dreams about his people. Why did God set me aside? Why did God cause me? I'm the only Israelite being raised as a prince of Egypt. What does God have for me? Maybe he had all these kinds of thoughts in his head as he went to see his people. And it says he looked upon the burdens of his people. You see, Moses had a just and compassionate heart. Yeah? Justice meant something to Moses. So when he goes to see the people and he sees the burdens, he sees the injustice, something in him rises up at that point. 
He doesn't just look and go, oh my goodness, I didn't realize it was this bad. He doesn't think like that. Something in him rises up when he sees what's going on, when he sees the injustice, the unfairness of the way they were being treated. And what does it say? It says, he looked this way and that. Yeah? So he comes in, he sees something happening, something rises up in him, he looks this way and that, and he carries out this deed to avenge. In Acts it says, he avenged the Israelite who was being beaten by the Egyptian. But he makes sure no one's watching, no one's watching me. In his own heart, he's carrying out, he's beginning to carry out the very purposes of God. This is what God's put me here for, to release the people. It says, maybe, you know, after he kills the Egyptian, I don't know how these thoughts go together, he kills the Egyptian, and he's thinking the Israelites are going to think, where'd you go, Moses? Thank you. You're beginning to release us. We're going to be delivered from Egypt. That's what he's thinking. So when he comes the next day, and he sees these two Israelites fighting, he comes, he's not now trying to, trying to act in a just way. He's just trying to reconcile them. There's a difference. In the first incident, it's justice that, that matters. Here, he's trying to reconcile. Oh, come on, brothers, what's going on? And he's shocked when one of them turns to him and says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Who do you think you are? I imagine that must have shocked Moses because for years, in his heart, he was the deliverer. He was the one who was coming to bring deliverance to Israel. And yet here, they are rejecting his call or what he sees as his call. His attempts at salvation were rejected. He must have wondered, God has called me to this. Can't you see? Don't you understand? The truth is Moses was both right and wrong. He was right and wrong in that moment. He was right because God had called him to that. But he was wrong because he wasn't ready. And it wasn't God's time. Now you can then argue about all the, re the reality of Moses isn't ready, it's not God's time, so the Israelites carried on suffering under slavery. That's, that was the reality. He wasn't ready. It wasn't God's time. And so then, when, when they respond like that, and they say to him, you know, they make it clear that they know what he's done, he then becomes afraid. He's fearful now, and he flees from Pharaoh. Rather than saviour of saving the people, he ends up having to rush out and get out of that place. He ends up fleeing Egypt. He flees from Pharaoh, the palace, the Israelites, and the promise. He flees from it all. He's fearful. He's frightened. Do you know what? That's often the way when we act what seemingly seems in a good way, just way, but we act outside the will. We act too quickly. We act too rashly. People don't recognise it. And suddenly we're afraid. Oh, they're coming for me. What's going on? God, what are you doing? Moses must have thought he was ready. He must have thought, I'm ready for the work you've got for me to do, God. But he wasn't ready. And sometimes we think we're ready. Do you know what? I thought I was ready to be a pastor when I was 20 years old. Yeah? I thought I was, I was God. 
Phil could test it. I was ready. In my own mind, I was ready. And then when I married Pauline, I was too scared to tell her I wanted to be a pastor. So I wasn't really ready. And then when she discovered I wanted to be a pastor, she was disappointed in me. Really, Owen? I don't see that in you. Imagine how I felt. I wanted to be a pastor. I had stood in a meeting of 200 other pastors and said, I want to be a pastor. And then when my wife discovered I wanted to be a pastor, she was like, I don't see it in you. Those were her first words. Her first words. I don't, I don't see that in you, Owen. The pastor thing. I wasn't ready. I might have thought I was ready, but I wasn't ready. And sometimes, even those of us who are so keen to serve God and to please him can be completely out of touch with where we really are. Completely out of touch. I didn't know I wasn't ready. I I just discovered it. It began to become obvious to me. Oh, how do I do this? So Moses flees, and no doubt. And it says that he, he flees to Midian, and he sat down by a well. And I love that phrase, he sat down by a well. It, in many ways, it sounds just really innocent, really innocuous. He just, an innocuous action, he just sits down. Maybe he's tired, maybe he's thirsty. Maybe he's waiting for someone to come along who could give him a drink. But maybe also he's living with shattered dreams. Everything he had believed and hoped for, everything he thought he was there for, remember he was 40 years old, he wasn't a young man. Maybe he was living with the guilt of those actions. He sat down by the well. You see, the Bible talks about, in the New Testament, it talks about Jesus. It talks about when Jesus ascended on high, um, having, having, having died on the cross, he rose again uh, from the dead and he ascended into heaven. It says of Jesus that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And in that context, sitting down was a sign that Jesus had finished the work that God had called him to do. Jesus had, Jesus had brought about the salvation that he was meant to bring about. He made it possible, as we were hearing earlier, for us to enter into this personal relationship with God that the barrier had been removed. He sat down. He sat down because he finished. Moses sat down because he failed. He failed in the work of God. That would have been his understanding. He wouldn't have sat down twiddling his thumbs and thinking it didn't know. He would have sat down and he had failed. Everything he had been living for ended in that moment as far as he would have been concerned. His passionate desire to deliver the people had failed. And he must have questioned God, himself, all those kinds of things. Don't don't think it's that innocuous. Don't think it's that innocent. He sat down. You imagine when you have something that you have burning in your heart and it fails, it doesn't work. Or people turn around to you and say, really, you? And you go, oh, God, I thought you had spoken. God may well have spoken. God may well have said something. But even in that moment, it's interesting, he's sitting down by the well. Even in that moment, we know, as I said earlier, in his heart, 
Moses was a just man. There was something about justice that was in his heart. So when the shepherds come and they oppress the shepherdesses and they, and they sort of push them out, Moses stands up for them. Now, I don't think he did that because he was trying to win one of their hearts. I don't think that was the thing. He does in the end, but I don't think that was why he did it. I think he stood up for them because, hey, here's some oppressed people. He, he just gets up. Some of us are like that. We just stand in the gap. I'm not saying I'm particularly like that. I know some of you are like that. If you see him just, you'll, you'll get involved. You'll stand up on behalf of others. And sometimes that's exactly the right thing to do. He opposed those oppressors. And in the end, those actions are rewarding, aren't they? He find, as a result of doing that action, he finds a home, a wife, a family, and it says he lives contentedly. Even that was God's doing, not his own. And then you read about this relationship that begins to develop between Moses and his father-in-law. We, we hear, later we read of him as Jethro, but Ruel, that was also his name, his father-in-law, the prince or the priest of Midian, he's a good influence on Moses. It says that Moses was contented to live with him, to live among his people. And the life of a shepherd seemed to suit him, even though he must have wondered, he must have, he must have thought, I was about to deliver my people from, from the hands of the Egyptians after 400 years of slavery, now I am a shepherd in the wilderness. How did that happen? What happened? What went wrong? He must have thought that. You might be thinking that. You might be thinking when you were younger, um, maybe people had words over you and they prophesied and they brought stuff and, and you felt, oh God, you, you're going to use me to change everything. Maybe. Or you're going to use me in great ways. And, and now, 10 years later, 15 years later, 5 years later, you're like, what am I doing here? If, God, you've got all these things for me, why am I here? I know I felt that. For loads of years I felt that. Pauline just got fed up with me talking about that. Because God was at work and it wasn't the right time. And then we find at the end of that, 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 that sort of uh, passage, and I think it's really interesting, it talks about God hearing the groanings of the people of Israel. And it's almost like you, you get the impression that by the time we read this particular part of the passage, the Israelites are no longer fighting the Egyptians They've been subdued by the slavery. They've been oppressed. They've been pushed down. They've been beaten. You know, if you like, they've had all the fight whipped out of them. You sense that, that they've, they've got no more energy. So much so that there's no plans, there's no activity to release them. There are the deep groans of the heart where you can't do anything about something. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a place where you can do nothing about your situation? Nothing really. Or you see some injustice and you think, God, I, I, I don't know what to do. I can do nothing about that. I almost feel I should be able to, but I can do nothing about that. And so what happens is you groan deep in your spirit. 
And you know what? Those groans are prayers. They're prayers. Because that's what it says here. They'd run out of everything else. They groaned so deeply they probably didn't even realise they were doing it. That they were praying. That they were asking God. They were coming to God. And it says God heard those groans. Sometimes we see injustice, but there's not a lot we can do about it. Sometimes there's not a lot we can do to make a difference there, but we can pray. We can get to that point where we're, oh God, oh God. And that's where the Israelites got. And it's interesting what the passage tells us, because the passage tells us that these people were groaning in their slavery. They're groaning in, their, in the cruelty of how they're being treated, the injustice, the unfairness of it all. And it says, God hears the groaning. He hears the groaning, but what does he do? It's interesting what he does and what the passage tells us God does. God hears the groaning. But he doesn't respond to the groaning. God doesn't say to himself, oh, I'm moved. I'm moved by the groaning of the people. He, he is moved, but what is he moved to do? He's moved to remember something. He remembers his promise. God remembers the covenant promise that he makes to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that I will set free and deliver my people. The groaning causes him to remember his promise. You see, God doesn't respond, and I don't mean this, I know we live in a world where, where justice is quite a big thing. God doesn't just respond because of injustice. More than injustice, the thing that moves God is that are his own promises, his own covenant promise, what he has said and promised to himself. That moves him more. It moves him more. So in this case, God responds to their groaning. And how does he respond? And we'll see it. We'll look at it in more detail next week. He responds by coming to Moses. He doesn't immediately come to the people. He comes to Moses. Similar situation when, when uh, uh, Abraham sends away Hagar and his son Ishmael. And Hagar puts Ishmael down. It says a bow shot away. And the boy cries. When the boy cries, God doesn't go to the boy. He goes to the mum. She puts him over there. She puts him a distance away because she doesn't want to see him die. So when he cries, God hears the cry and he goes to the mum. When the Israelites cry, God hears the cry. He remembers his covenant promise and he goes to Moses. That's how God does it. God has a way. He doesn't just respond to injustice in the way we might respond to injustice. Because Moses' response to injustice got him nowhere. In fact, it's all part of the purposes of God that he ended up going out, but it, it didn't get him anywhere, his response to injustice. So how can we just look at this? I want to make some observations and just applications on this passage and and the first thing that you you can notice here right at the beginning when I talked about Moses was 
um, mighty in word and deed. He was educated in all the ways of the Egyptians. And yet we know he refused to identify himself as an Egyptian, though there must have been many advantages to do so. He refused to do it. He turned his back on the education and the wealth and the status and the power and the prestige and the inheritance. Everything that was there for him, he turned his back on it. And yet it was probably all of those things that made him act in the way that he did. But he turned his back on it. And it's important we understand that sometimes in order to fulfill the purposes of God, our heritage, our cultural heritage, we need to weigh that in the light of what God is doing. Sometimes you have to turn your back on your past, on your way, on the way you were raised and all those things because God doesn't always work through stuff in that kind of way. God needs you to be open to whatever he wants you to do, however he would do that. And sometimes it might be against your natural inclination. Do you know what? That's, that happens to me all the time. There are things that are natural to me Natural to my personality, my character, that I realise, oh, actually, God, God doesn't, he's not asking me to function in a natural kind of way. He's not asking me to operate like that. He's asking me to do something else. And all the time, I'm having to check myself. And some of us, where we're, we're, again, we're resourceful, we're strong, and we can do stuff, sometimes we need to check our very personalities and go, okay, God, is this how you want me to work? God does, clearly God makes us, and there is this thing about God working through our personalities, and that is true. But I think if you read the story of Moses, you will discover God doesn't work through a personality here. He finds a man, he shapes that man to the point where Moses will be obedient to what God says. It's not about his personality. It's not about he's like this or he's like that. It's about the fact that he's obedient. And in the end, you see, when you read through the story, you find that Moses literally becomes a messenger of God. So God says, Moses, do this, and Moses goes and does it. And God says, do that, and he goes and does it. You don't find that there's any big personality in there, other than he gets impulsive and angry in a moment, and he strikes a rock, and he loses his own inheritance. That's what, it's the only bit of personality you find. So let's not allow our cultural heritage, whatever that might look like for us, to be a stumbling block to God's ability to use us. Sometimes your own way of thinking you have to check and examine in the light of the truth. Secondly, we talked about the fact that Moses' dreams were shattered. When he sat down by that well, I think he was a broken man. He was a broken man. Because all the things he had expected to happen in his life hadn't happened the deliverer he thought he was going to become, he hadn't become. And for so many of us, we live on expectations that haven't been fulfilled. And so in our hearts, we live with almost a constant disappointment in God. God, I thought you said. I thought you spoke. When that person, that per this great person, when they brought that word, I thought you said. And we can live constantly with disappointment in God. 
And no doubt, because many of us have come from similar kind of church backgrounds, God has spoken to you. You've been in environments where God has spoken. People have brought words over you. And you look at your life now and you think, God, where, where are those? Where are those? You may even think to yourself, I failed. The reason they haven't happened is me. I failed. I remember talking to a, a fellow pastor and we were, we were at a prayer and fasting a couple of days away and we were praying together and I remember him, him saying, as, as, as we began to pray, he opened up and he said, he said, I, I just, I, he was disappointed because he hadn't reached the potential that he felt everyone saw in him. He said, oh, people used to pray over me. I'd have these words and they'd come and it was like I was going to do this, I was going to do that. And I don't feel I've, I don't feel I've reached it. I haven't reached the potential that I thought that people brought over me or maybe I even thought myself. I remember talking to another friend who said, uh, yeah, I was struggling. I began to believe the hype about myself. People would say this about me and that about me. I began to believe it. Uh, and yet I'm not there. Moses lived with shattered dreams. And some of us live with shattered dreams. And then there are two things you can do with shattered dreams. There are two ways of responding. Both types of responding require us to give up. One of the ways we give up is we go, I've had enough. You know, I've, I've, I've been there, done that, I've heard it all, I've had enough. Yeah, people say that kind of stuff, but it never happens. We can become cynical. We can become inwardly frustrated. We can actually become reluctant to, be, to move on. And we decide to focus on something different to what we believe God had originally spoken to us. You can give up. You can give up on your dreams and you can give up on God. And it doesn't mean you stop going to church. It doesn't mean you stop getting involved. But it does mean that in your heart, you've just moved on. You're, you're oh, no, I can't, I can't live with that anymore. It's too painful. I remember. And you become a little bit more cynical about stuff. There's another way of giving up, though, which is the way God would encourage us to give up. We can give up when we realise, do you know what, I can't do this. I do not have the resources, the power, the gifts to do the thing that you seem to be calling me to do. I cannot do this. But you can do this, God. And you've chosen to do this through the likes of me. So what I do is I just cling on. I hold on. Despite everything, everything might be telling me it's not what I just hold on. Faith is about believing and holding on. And so some of us need to move from one kind of giving up to another kind of giving up. Some of us need to get to that place where we give up in God and we don't give up and move outside of God and his purposes. So I talked about the fact that Moses was a man of justice and I've, I've spoken about that a bit. And, um, 
And they clearly, there's a place for justice. And in our day, people talk about justice all the time. I sit in meetings, people say, well, the big thing is justice. And it's not that I don't believe in God is a God of justice. The Bible is very clear about that. God is a God of justice. But God is a God of promise. And sometimes, a bit like the Israelites, the Israelites got to the point where they could do nothing about their situation. The injustices that they were living with, they had no way of dealing with those, no way of handling those apart from the groaning, apart from the praying. And some of the injustices that we see around us in the world today, we can't do anything about that. Sometimes what God requires is people who pray and remind him of his promise. God, you're a God of justice. You're slow to anger. You're compassionate. God needs us to remind him of those things. We need to learn to remind him of those things. Because sometimes when we pursue justice, sometimes, and we pursue injustice, it brings out in us anger. And sometimes that anger might be good, but sometimes that is not good anger. Sometimes I know that because of injustices in history, I want to withdraw relationally from people. Sometimes I know, I think, I'm not going to go there. I don't want to talk to people. I hold attitudes. I have to learn to bring that to God. I have to understand that God is big enough and that God, just like he had here, has a plan. God has a plan for dealing with stuff. And then next, just a couple more quick things. One of the ways that we grow is through humility. So Moses may have come and sat down at the well, and initially that might have been a sense of shattered dreams. I've failed. But out of that grows humility. Because he had been humiliated, really, with his encounter with the Egyptian, his rejection by the Israelites, his fleeing from Pharaoh, in the end Moses had been humiliated and God's plan was always to humble him in order that he could use him. God's plan is to humble you in order that he can use you. In Luke 18 it says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, he who humbles himself will be exalted. There are two ways you will be humbled. Some of you will, some of us will aspire to humility. We want to be humble. We're asking God, would you humble me? Oh, I've seen that pride again. Would you humble me? Others of us are not like that. And if God's going to use you, humility will be brought upon you through your circumstances. I'm not being, it will be brought upon you. And your circumstances will humble you. And you will end up in a situation where you are humbled, even though you didn't want to be humbled. I think that was Moses. Moses didn't intend ever to be a shepherd of sheep in the wilderness of Midian. He intended to be a deliverer of Israel. And he was always going to be a deliverer, but God needed to humble him before he could use him. And God needs to humble you, and God needs to humble me before he can use us. Humbling is one of the means by which he builds your character. And then the final quick point I want to make is a question, really. And uh, I love this. I, I've focused on this as I, I've never really noticed it before. When, it li- when that line where it says that Moses was content to dwell. He was content to dwell. You see, Moses' wilderness years were not wasted. It wasn't like he was out there 
And he was like, oh my goodness, I'm just wasting all this time. I could be back in, back in Egypt. It wasn't wasted years. He married, he had children, he shepherded his father-in-law's sheep. And with those responsibilities, he learned to provide and to protect and to be present for those who were under his care. His role with Israel would be no different. It would be no different. He was there to provide, to protect and to be present for the people. And he learned to be content. He learned to dwell amongst a wilderness people who were foreigners to him, but who were peaceable with him. He learned to dwell there. And dwelling there meant he became free from the edginess of the cause. And he became communion with God. You see, next week we're going to look at the fact that after you go through that process, you need an encounter. And Moses has his encounter with God. But he only really comes through that encounter because he learned to dwell. He stopped fighting. He stopped battling. He stopped really trying to make it work. And he learned to dwell. And in that process, God restored his soul. Psalm 23 could have been written of Moses during these years. He restores my soul. And God wants to restore your soul. He wants you to learn to dwell. He wants you to learn to be content in the place that he's put you. Even though it might be as far away from what you think you're called to as you can possibly imagine. He wants you to learn because in that place, God is working and dealing in your heart. Let's pray. I just want to give a moment for us to be in the presence of God, for you to consider things. It might be the word that was brought earlier that, that Sarah brought about the wall. That might You might go, that's me. I feel behind the wall. It might be that in the celebration of communion that you were encouraged to examine yourself. It might be through something that I've said that the Holy Spirit has put his finger on something in your life. And I don't want us to leave here without responding to God. That response might simply be a, res a, a resolving with yourself. I'm going to do that. I I'm going to say something there. I'm going to give up all of that stuff. It might be that you need to come to God and ask that he would restore your soul. That you would switch. It sounds really easy, I know. But you would switch the way you give up. That you don't give up with that sense of cynicism underneath it. But you give up with that sense of surrender to God. It's your work. It's not my work. It's your ways. It's not my ways.
Father, this morning we, once again, we look to you. We look to you, Holy Spirit, to uh, complete the work that you've begun in us. I pray for every person this morning where something has been brought to the surface. Uh, I pray that we would quickly recognise it's a work of the Spirit that's brought that to the surface. And Father, I pray that we would have uh, the courage and the and the strength to deal with it. I pray against apathy, that the moment this meeting ends, that seed or that thought disappears. I pray against that, God. And I pray that the seed that has been planted in the hearts and lives of your people this morning will bear much fruit. I ask that you will protect it and that you will water it, O oh God, and that it will lead to, to, to fruitfulness in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to finish there. No doubt Garth will put some music on. And uh, if you want to talk, then I'm... You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.